Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 513th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Miss Emily Van Wardhuizen. And she's the co-director of collections at Rock Island Carpolis Manuscript Museum, who's going to talk to us about the history of the Chinese. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. To begin with, welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you for having me. We'd like to call this first segment kind of a combination of history is local, because you're from Cross River, and Farouk Danarin. And our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. Can you start us off with some basic information of how this exhibit at the museum came to be? Absolutely. So uh, this uh, came to be because we have a very vast collection, and uh, every four months or so it circulates throughout the country to our other sister museums. Uh, So this time around we were due for our exhibit on Chinese history. Now I should give a little bit of disclaimer. Um, I'm very much aware that uh, China has a very rich and complex history. Our exhibit uh, does not scratch the surface. It only covers certain areas of and events of Chinese history. Um, We would need a much bigger exhibit uh, to properly uh, tell the story of China's history than what we have. So We'll do that for the second show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the exhibit really just covers events that are directly related to documents that are on display. Um, some of those documents are notes uh, related to certain events. Most of it, of the events, occur in like the 1800s, um, with a few exceptions from like the 1960s. All right, so it's from the 1800s kind of on. Yeah. So you are going to be a little more specific. You're going from colonialism when they're and their their dynasties are kind of falling mm-hmm. up to like when the autonomy of Mao or is that pretty much That's it? a good question. Um so mostly it deal I said 1800s but I'd say like early to uh mid late 1800s this what I'll be talking about uh and at least a good number of the cases in the exhibit uh talk about is the uh, treaty of, if I say this wrong, I apologize, uh, Wang Xia, and also the Tacoma Riot of 1885. Okay. Um, so why don't you uh, start off with that? So for one, let's go with, uh, you brought up the topic for one that you're sharing it with other museums that are within uh, the Carpolis, I guess, foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are these other museums at, if I'm That's a very good question. So our closest sister museum is St. Louis. Then we have one uh, two in New York. Uh, the new one opened up in Florida. Um, that's actually our new headquarters. Before it was in Santa Barbara, California, which is where Dr. Carpolis was born and where he passed. Um, but the family has decided to move down to Florida. And uh, we actually have one I found out through my research in Tacoma, Washington, which I didn't know <laughs> until. Really? Yeah. Mm. Talking to a curator from the uh, Tacoma Historical Society, they mentioned it was like two blocks away, and I had no idea. I'm kind of surprised Governor DeSantis let them open a museum in Florida, but we'll talk about that <laughs> later. Uh, so let's go back to the subject matter. Um, why don't you start off from the beginning, because mm-hmm. you were talking about, of course, two cornerstone events, and mm-hmm. give our listeners that background there. Absolutely. So a little 
other disclaimer, I am not a subject matter expert uh, on Chinese history or even these events, and I will try my best for pronunciations, but the only languages I've experienced with are either Romantic and Germanic, uh, so I apologize for pronunciations in advance. Okay. So uh, the first event um, I'm talking about will be the Treaty of Wangxia. Uh, its official name is the Treaty of Peace, Amity, and Commerce between the United States of America and the Chinese Empire. So it was the first trade treaty between US, the United States of America and China, specifically the Qing Dynasty. Um, so it was signed on July 3rd, 1844, but ratified by President John Tyler on January 17th, 1845, then formally sealed by President James Polk on April 15th, 1845. And uh, our uh, document in the case is uh, basically that seal I mentioned, um, and it talks about um, why there's uh, what the treaty does and uh, between the two powers. So in this case, China, sorry, the Qing Dynasty and the USA. Um, so it was represented by one Caleb Cushing, uh, who was a lawyer in Massachusetts, who was sent by. Uh, President Tyler, because Tyler was getting a lot of pressure from industrialists and merchants to get uh, trade going with China, because they were very worried that uh, Britain was dominating the trade game, and they wanted to make sure that the U.S. had a stake in it. So uh, they, with Cushing, had a um, interpreter whose name was Peter Parker, and yeah. Kind of made me laugh too when I saw Jeez, it. Yeah, um, but he was their interpreter, and the uh, Qing Dynasty was uh, represented by Viceroy Qi Ying, and uh, the treaty was very similar uh, to the Treaty of uh, Britain had between the Qing Dynasty, the Nanjing uh, Treaty. And that treaty, uh, at least in our case, our version of the treaty, they were very similar contacts, uh, contents. Uh, it granted extraterritoriality uh, between China and the U.S., so uh, Chinese subjects would be treated, uh, retried, and punished by Chinese law. Uh, however, Americans over there, uh, American citizens would be tried and punished under authority of the American consul unless the crimes had to do with opium, then uh, the council did not have, American consul did not have the right to interfere and the Chinese government would deal with them. Uh, and they'd have to be turned over to China. Um, but it also include fixed tariffs uh, on trade at, at the treaty ports, uh, the right to buy land in the five treaty ports and erect churches and hospitals there. And then, uh, most one of the most important, uh, the right to learn Chinese, um, because it, prior to that there was a law abolishing foreigners from learning Chinese. Really? Uh, yes, at least that's what I found in my research. Like I said, not expert, but that kind of surprised me. Well, I mean, I have a slight idea of that area. Um, China had a really hard time with, uh, in, you know, financial and industrial expansion because they were very much a what you would consider traditional society. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were having power struggles between dynasties for quite some time. And I'd like to point out to our listeners, China 
when we're talking about is not like China today. It wasn't geographically as large, and it def- definitely wasn't under one ruler, one house. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Uh, well, listen, we would like to talk more about this, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today's show is Miss Emily Van Wardheisen. Uh, co-director of collections at the Rock Island Carpolis uh, Manuscript Museum, and we're talking about the history of the Chinese uh, in the 19th and 20th century. Mm-hmm. Our history buffs today show are Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. So, Rick, why don't you start us off? Thanks, John. Easy for you to say. <laughs> Especially today. Today. Emily, uh, you were talking about this uh, trade uh, mm-hmm. agreement. Uh, as uh, in the uh, 1844-45 period. What other significant documents is in this this exhibit? I'm glad you asked. So um, we have a wide range of documents. Um, At least three deal with the treaty I mentioned, Um, but the others, uh, or at least just one, but I still find it very interesting, um, is a document from uh, President uh, Cleveland, uh, talking about the Tacoma riot. Uh, so if you haven't heard of the Tacoma riot, what it was was in uh, 1845 on November 3rd, a mob of 500 citizens from Tacoma marched to Tacoma's Chinatown and forcibly uh, took these people from their houses. Uh, I should probably give a little background. So thing about uh, Tacoma is to set the stage in uh, in the 1850s. Uh, with the gold rush, there was an influx of Chinese immigrants uh, coming over to the U.S. for the mining industry, hoping to make money. And for most of them, the goal was to eventually go back to China. They would also send uh, money to their families in the meantime. Um, however, uh, with the uh, increase of all the Chinese uh, workers, um, anti Chinese sentiment was also on the rise, uh, especially because the China uh, Chinese workers were a integral part of building the railroad, the transcontinental railroad, and they made up a significant portion of the um, 
workforce. So the with the railroad, uh, the North Pacific Rail Ray, yeah, Railway was uh, finished in 1873, um, which is what brought the Chinese uh, laborers to Tacoma. Uh, and by that time, they had their own uh, Chinatown established. Some even had the ones that had been there longer had businesses uh, and were pillars of their uh, own community within uh, Tacoma. Um, so as I mentioned before, with the rise of workers also meant the rise of, well, hate. Uh, and all across the Western United States, there were a lot of uh, anti-Chinese sentiment, uh, whether in the newspapers, but also acts of violence. Uh, in the case of Tacoma, it was actually inspired by a um, incident that happened in Eureka, California. Basically, uh, there, the economy wasn't doing so great over there, same with Tacoma, and it was decided by the council to basically uh, let any Chinese citizens within that area know that they need to be get their stuff and leave. And they were basically uh, taken to a port and to get on a steamboat to San Francisco. Uh, and the thing that set apart from like other riots and stuff uh, was that there was sort of a organized element to it uh, in which they had these uh, committees that they would let the uh, different households in China uh, know, or Chinatown know, and basically herd them to the shore. So a member of the Tacoma uh, City Council uh, was in Eureka at the time and then came back to um, Tacoma and report what he saw. Um, so enter one Mayor Jakob Weisbach, or uh, according to how uh, locals in Tacoma say, uh, Jacob Weisbach. Uh, he was the mayor of Tacoma, and it's worth noting that Weisbach was a German immigrant himself. Uh, he, it's also worth noting that he was in Tacoma uh, after more uh, uh, some of the other more established Chinese immigrants. So he wasn't there first, and there's a reason I bring that up. Um, Weisbach was a businessman turned politician. He became the mayor, right? Uh, he became the mayor, and one of the things he really focused on was, well, uh, anti-Chinese sentiment. Uh, he invited a labor group known as the Knights of Labor, and they would have several meetings over a period of time where they'd talk about how to answer the question of the Chinese problem, which to them was just basically having the presence of Chinatown and Chinese workers because there were issues with um, the economy at the time because the big railway project is done. And with that, it's also a slower economy. Um, and they blamed it on the Chinese workers because, and this was not just Tacoma that did this, this was also a lot like California and other states dealing with this. Um, what would be happening in the mines is that Chinese workers would agree to much lower wages, and then white workers felt that that was undercutting them and also making it harder for them to get jobs. But the thing is, uh, the Chinese workers didn't really have a choice. It was definitely a situation of take, take it or leave it. So they couldn't negotiate 
for better wages. And also there was a language barrier in some cases. And it's also worth noting that um, any like uh, labor organizations or pro-labor organizations were not inviting Chinese workers to these. So they could, were not able to ask for higher wages or better working conditions. Um, and it was very much of a, a uh, European versus Chinese uh, workers within those mines, as in a lot of the white workers were also immigrants themselves and trying to support their local families, which wasn't too unlike uh, the Chinese laborers because they're just trying to support their families uh, or in China. However, the owners of the mine, industrialists or whatever, really honed in on the fact that these two groups were butting heads and they used it to their advantage. Because If I recall too, before I give the question, the, the Chinese back then too, their, their um, appearance in fashion was obviously very different. Very uh, different. Uh, mm-hmm. very different. They had, I forget, the, the braids that mm-hmm. were mandatory for Chinese individuals to wear, which... The little funny cap. Well, I wouldn't go that far with it, but, uh, but again, it was something, if you didn't have a divide there already in the first place... This with uh, horrible insults and accusations from the uh, the American European miners made things worse. Ed, yes, um, Emily, can you talk about um, the acquisition process uh, for these documents and manuscripts? Um, I will do my best. Um, our branch doesn't real really deal with that, and when I came on board, the collection has already been well established because. So we have at least, what I've been told, a million manuscripts within our collection and actually started out as a family hobby. Uh, So uh, I probably said this the last time I was on here, so I won't get the full story. But essentially, uh, back in the, like, 1970s, 1980s, they started collecting manuscripts uh, because uh, Dr. Karpless uh, realized kids will be interested in history and in the past if they can... See, it's real. I or in the case of what happened when they first started collecting, uh, they noticed that their children were like really looking at the stuff in uh, the c- cases in a manuscript museum. His son pointed out Albert Einstein crosses out words like I do. His daughter pointed out that she has similar writing to uh, Thomas Jefferson, and he realized if you can show like the past is real, not like this kind of mythical concept. Uh, if that makes sense, that kids will get engaged. So they started collecting from places like Christie's, Christie's and Sotheby's, and once it piled up to be too much, they decided to share with the public. Um, so as for the acquisition, I don't think we're collecting it anymore. Um, if anything, we're, we're kind of in a transition period right now, uh, doing a inventory of the collection, figuring what all we have. Okay. Rick. Emily, uh in this uh, collection, what is the most interesting document or artifact uh, that you have in the collection? Mm-hmm. But what is the most interesting document to you? That's kind of hard to answer because one, I don't. I ask hard questions. That's why they pay me. <laughs> and he doesn't have the answers. So <laughs> I do not have the answers. <laughs> That's hard to answer because I've only seen what's come through our doors. Um, well, in I, this exhibit, in this particular exhibit, what is what is to you the most interesting? I'd have to thing? say the uh, exhibit, uh, or sorry, exhibit the document related to the Tacoma riot, which was um, signed by President uh, Cleveland. Basically, uh, I was getting to it. Uh, 
after the events of the Tacoma riot, this was kind of his way of dealing with it and said, by so signing it, this is his warrant, his being Jacob Weisbaugh. Um, and to me, that was interesting because I knew nothing about the Tacoma riot before researching this. And when I was researching it, um, I realized the further I read, the worse it got in the sense, like, it was interesting, but it was just heartbreaking. And when all the factors of the fact that Weisba was an immigrant himself, uh, and I hadn't mentioned it yet, but uh, 27 people were indicted um, from that, no convict, no one got in trouble for it um, at all. In fact, when the 20, they were called the 27. The 27 were picked up and taken to court. People were cheering them out of the town. Um, they were lauded as heroes. And when they came back, there was a parade. Like it, like I said, the worse it got, the more I read. Now, there were definitely people in Tacoma at the time who very much were not all about the Tacoma method. And um, that's another thing. So after the riot happened, um, newspapers, the ones that were in favor of this kind of thing, praised it as a seemingly nonviolent uh, method, very peaceful method. And uh, it's not because people were torn from their homes. And also a few days later, uh, well, they were torn from their homes, then forced to march eight miles to the train station, and then forced to buy their own tickets to Portland, Oregon. Uh, sometimes most of them just the clothes on their back. And uh, if they couldn't afford it, they were um, put in a boxcar in a freight train. And the, once there was no room, they were forced to walk across the tracks. Two people died from exposure. Yeah. And after that, a few days after that, they came back and burned the town to the ground. And it wasn't until 1993 that uh, the town apologized. They made it park. But uh, in my research, they really drove the fact home that they're none of the people within the Chinatown returned. It was a very long time. Like, it was literally erased off the map. Okay. Um, Ed. Yeah. Um, Emily, can you tell us a little bit about the building that your museum occupies here? And uh, it's been a long time that I was on a show where we had somebody from your museum. But um, as I recall, part of the the mission uh, of their character of the Carpellis was um, to sort of find unique old buildings that were still mm -hmm. salvageable and not too far gone. Mm -hmm. um, is that true of the other museums as well? Yes. So uh, you're kind of close about the mission. So it turns out, or turned out that Dr. Carpellis was a very big fan of neoclassical architecture. And uh, it just so happens that a lot of our buildings are former Christian scientist churches because that was their go-to style uh, for architecture. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that style, it uh, borrows from uh, Greco-Roman art and architecture. Um, symmetry is a very big thing for this style, but also basic in the sense that you only have geometric shapes, nothing too ornate, like compared to things that you see like in Rococo or Art Nouveau, not that, that any of those styles simultaneously simultaneously existed with one another. Um, but the Christian scientists really appreciated that style because they thought anything else would distract from their sermons. So a lot of our buildings will have the columns like our building has. Excuse me. In fact, um, 
Well, I was going to say that our building has a sister building, but that's not tr quite true. So we were, the building was built by an Alfred C. Jones of Chicago, and he worked on other Christian scientist churches during his career, and there was one in Kalamazoo, Michigan, that was very similar to ours, even with our glass dome. They had similar domes with each other, but that building was raised. Was it, is, isn't the Rock Island Museum, I thought it was, uh, was it not once home to a Jewish, uh, uh, I thought it was a Jewish synagogue. Uh, I have no idea. Yeah. Not I don't either. to my I, knowledge. I mean, it's possible. Wait, was it, was it a... Uh, uh, was it a it was a church? I know I do know it. Yes, nineteen fifteen to nineteen ninety five. Yes, okay. And I have had uh, the luck, I guess, of uh, getting a tour mm -hmm. of the second story. Oh, okay. Um, and um, it was all there. It's been quite a while, but it was all there. Um, is there ongoing restoration projects, or is it more or less kind of in holding pattern? That's a good question. So I'd say there is ongoing restoration. So the thing of being a Carpos Museum, we have a lot of sister museums, right? So our annual budget, you know, has to support all of us. So any repairs that are done are done with, like, local team, like our director, God bless her, will anytime we have issues or if we'll climb up the roof and help tar it. We are in the work. You are the workman. Yeah. Uh, we are in the process of looking to get the roof uh, replaced, but unfortunately, it's a very old building, and uh, it's a challenge. Uh, it's beautiful as uh, neoclassical buildings are. Flat roofs are a common thing, and uh, so be quite a challenge. What about the dome? The dome. So uh, depends which one, because currently we have three domes, uh, but it wasn't always that way. Um, so... Prior to 2012, there was the large outer dome, that I'll call it cement dome, that's probably not what it's made of, but anyways, that would encase the inner dome, which is a stained glass dome made of about like 8,000 fish scale uh, panes, and that's not including like the floral panes, stuff like that, and then uh, this very top of that glass dome was a uh, kind of a wagon wheel, wagon wheel style piece uh, that had florals, which they were simple florals, but still a bit of a departure from that neoclassical style. But um, And then there was a little mini dome that sat on top of that, and it joined the two, and that's where the natural light would come in. Uh, nowadays, though, you'll, the natural light comes in through these portholes because that was installed afterwards because in 2012 there was a very bad windstorm that basically dislodged that uh, little mini dome into the air and over to the neighbor's house. They were, yeah, I was told they were home at the time. Uh, no one's hurt, but probably severely traumatized. Okay, when we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. 
ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 513th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guests, Miss Emily Van Wardhuizen, co-director of collections at the Rock Island Carpalis Manuscript Museum, who has talked to us about the history of the Chinese in the 19th and early 20th century. The History Bus for today's show were Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.